You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Okay, we'll be in John chapter 12. Krista, do you want to grab some of those journals? And if you would like one, uh, Krista will hand them to you. They are free, and we would love for you to have one so you could follow along. You could take some notes in it if you like, or just listen, whatever you would like. It's totally up to you. And as you walk out, if you want to take, uh, take a couple with you, we don't mind. Whatever gets the, the Word of God out there. So if you want more than one, you can have more than one. So let me just read our sermon passage, John chapter 12, verse 30. I'm sorry, starting in verse 12 through 36. So if you're new to the Bible, if you've got one of those journals, that's just the Gospel of John, one of 66 books in the Bible. And the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. That just helps you find your place in this large uh, book. So look for the big number 12, and then after you find that, find the little number 12, and that's where I will start, right in the middle of the book. So here we go. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said, said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant there my servant will there will my servant be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and i will glorify it again the crowd that stood there heard it and said heard it said that it was that it had thundered Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is come is among you for a little while longer. While, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness will not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help as we dig into your word today. Help us to see Jesus, to love him for who he is, and to respond to his call to turn from our sins and trust wholly in him as King and Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In January of 49 B.C., a very significant event happened. The Republic of Rome was expanding like crazy, and there was a general in the north by the name of Julius Caesar who was doing an amazing job of expanding the territory and the rule of Rome into Europe further and further. But his jurisdiction was held off by, like he was not, his, the end of his juris- jurisdiction was the river Rubicon. And so the river Rubicon, so as his power and popularity began to grow, he began to consider crossing the Rubicon and entering in and taking over the entire Republic of Rome. And so he began to consider this for a while and eventually decided to take his army and cross the Rubicon. So maybe you've heard that phrase, crossing the Rubicon. And that initiated essentially a five-year war um, um, with, uh, with Rome, which he eventually won. And the Republic of Rome then became the Empire of Rome. Julius Caesar became a dictator for life, and the whole world essentially changed. And so that phrase, crossing the Rubicon, is the idea of committing some sort of act of which there's no return. It's the point of no return. It's that point on the roller coaster when you snap in and it starts moving, and you're like, all right, this is it. This may be the last few minutes of my life, you know. Um, And so... That is what's happening here, is that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and the world was never the same. This king, this man became king. He, he entered into Rome and became the dictator and the king. We're in the point in the Gospel of John where Jesus has crossed the Rubicon. What he has done is he has now reached the point of no return. Um, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus ha- or, um, John has been Um, describing Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And to this point, there's been various times, particularly in John 6, where the people have recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and the King of Israel. And he said, the hour has not yet come. And so he keeps sneaking away. He keeps, keeps, uh, whenever they want to make some sort of political move with him, he he sneaks away. He says, his hour has not come. And now, We have the point where the hour has come. And in chapters 11 and 12, we have a transition from the ministry of Jesus, healing people, teaching people. Now we are about to enter into the part of of John where Jesus crosses the Rubicon. He hits the point of no return in chapters 11 and 12. If you look back in chapter 11, just to give you a little bit of understanding of where we're at, we've we've, we've, um, we've just experienced the seventh sign In, in John chapter 11. If you flip, flip back there for just a moment, um, Jesus' close friend Lazarus has died. In verses 14 through 16, Jesus told his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad I was not there. Which is a strange thing to say, because he would have healed him. But he's like, I'm glad I'm not there because something more significant is going to happen. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but now let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So his disciples don't realize that Jesus is about to resurrect his friend Lazarus. So when Jesus says, let us go to him, Thomas thinks, oh, you mean go and die. Like, if we're going to go to where Lazarus is, that means we're going to our death. And in some sense, Thomas is right in that Jesus is about the act that he's about to commit is going to lead to his death. 
And ultimately, many of the disciples die for their allegiance with Jesus. So in John, you have these weird sort of like unintentional prophecies that happen. And so here we have um, Jesus is going to go and he's going to raise Lazarus. And this is going to be the breaking point of his conflict with the, um, with the religious leaders. Jump down to chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and everyone is like, we have never seen that before in our life. Jesus has the power that he utters three words, and dead men walk out of tombs. No one's been able to do that before. And so Jesus really must be the Messiah. He must really be the Son of God. If he can give life to dead people, then that's something only God can do. And so this, the, 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 uh, um, the, the reputation of this, I'm trying to think of, of the word I'm looking for, but this spreads everywhere. And people begin to hear and be drawn to Jesus. And look what happens. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So Jesus is getting way out of hand here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what are they afraid of? They're afraid that if people acknowledge Jesus as king, then Caesar, the one who inherited the throne from Julius Caesar, is going to bring the entire Roman Empire and they're just going to obliterate us. So we have got to put Jesus to death. We've got to put Lazarus to death because we do not want the Romans hearing about this upstart king. And so, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should perish. So it would be better to put this innocent man Jesus to death than for us to be wiped out by the Romans. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You see the unintentional prophecy there? Jesus would die. Not, not to save the nation from Rome, but to save a people from their sins. And you'll see that as we go through our passage today, that that is what people misunderstand about Jesus. Not for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that nation, from that day, uh, they made plans to put him to death. So the resurrection of Lazarus is the breaking point for the religious leaders, and now they're going to try to put him to death. They're going to try to kill him. He has gone too far. So in John chapter 12, we have what's called Palm Sunday. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but because of this text right here, we call the Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday. So we're about to enter the last week of Jesus' life. And this is the crossing the Rubicon moment. Jesus has reached his hour, and now he's going to formally embrace the title of King of Israel. And the King of Israel is going to come into the city of David um, in, on Passover week. So he is now going to receive his kingship. Um, so here's the context. It's the Sunday before Passover. According to historians, there's maybe 2.5 million people possibly in Jerusalem that have gathered for the Passover festival. That's an insane number of people packed into a tiny little town. But uh, that's, that's about how many people are there. So if you can just imagine, they're, they're still anticipating the Messiah. They're still doing all these... these um, sacrifices, and so you can just imagine that things are at a fevered pitch here. The Jewish leaders are plotting murder, and Jesus is about to enter the city as a king. So this is about as dramatic as it gets. And so here is our message title today is A Strange Kind of King. 
a strange kind of king. Because we're going to see Jesus coming in as the king of Israel, and in fact, the king of the whole world. The, the hour has come for him to take up his work, but he is not the king anyone would expect. And he's the kind of king that we have never seen in our entire lives. We have never seen in human history. Jesus is crossing the Rubicon in this passage. He's going to bring in his victorious kingdom, but it will not be like Julius Caesar with the sword. He is a vastly different kind of king. He does it. How he does it matters tremendously. That's going to be one of our application points at the end. Is It's not just the end, but actually the means to the end that matters. And we will, how we live for the glory of this king and advance his kingdom matters tremendously. So that's where we're going to go. So let's look at verses 12 through 18 and look at Jesus' strange entrance. This king has a strange entrance. This king is humble and non-political. This, is, this king is humble and non-political. Unlike a Julius Caesar who came in to seize the literal throne of Rome, the capital city, Jesus is coming into his city humble and non-politically. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is a prophecy from Psalm, oh, what's the psalm? You preached it, Justin, do you remember? Psalm 118, that's right. Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm about a victorious king coming from battle and being received back into the capital city. So the people are recognizing Jesus as the victorious promised king of Israel. So the people are receiving him as their king. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Zechariah 9, which Bree read a little bit earlier, is a prophecy from over 500 years prior about how this king would enter. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's strange. That's not a war horse. In fact, what will Jesus do with, what will this king do with the war horse? Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Oh, I'm sorry, let me look at, uh, uh, so Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Verse 10, which is not quoted here, but I think would be in everybody's mind, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So this is a king that's going to conquer with peace, not the sword. His, na- his rule shall be from sea to sea, and the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is entering and bringing a kingdom that is going to be a kingdom of peace. He's riding in on a donkey, a cheap beast of burden, not a majestic, expensive war horse. And so it says in verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The The reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they had heard he had done this sign. They'd heard that he had resurrected a man from the dead. And they're like, you know what? If anyone could overthrow Rome, it would be a guy who could raise the dead. Like, that would be very helpful on the battlefield, would it not? If every time one of your soldiers gets killed, you can just raise him back to life, how do you defeat a guy like that? So this might be the guy that makes Israel great again. This might be the guy that actually finally brings Israel back to its prominence in the world. This might be 
the guy who can overthrow the tyranny of Rome. And Jesus responds not by riding in on a war horse, not by gathering the swords, but by coming in on a donkey. A, a baby donkey, a young donkey, to say that he is going to enter via peace. The crowd is convinced, and Jesus' response is fascinating. He doesn't flee. He embraces their allegiance. He embraces their, um, their, uh, their call of him being a king, but he is not the king they thought. He's coming in humbly, and he's coming in non-politically. Jesus is coming to defeat not a political enemy. He's coming to be- defeat a spiritual enemy. They think their primary issue is outside of them. Jesus is coming to deal with an issue that's inside of them. Your biggest problem is not those out in the world. Your biggest problem is your rebellion against God. It's your sin. That's your biggest enemy. No one out there can send you to hell. Your sin can send you to hell. And Jesus came to deal with the real enemy, which was sin in the heart. So Jesus does not receive his kingship as a show of pomp and power. He receives it humbly on a donkey. And this doesn't make a lot of sense to them at first. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like, you got to get to the end, and then you're like, oh, there was all these little things throughout it, right? And the disciples don't quite get it yet. They don't quite get it yet until after, after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, does it then begin to go, oh, that was the plot line all along, is that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah and King that we thought. He is humble, and he comes in not to establish a political kingdom, but to establish a spiritual kingdom. So, Verses 19 through 22. So a strange entrance, a strange coronation. This king comes in humbly and non-politically, and, it, and he has a strange citizenship. This king draws outsiders. This king doesn't, doesn't rally up his constituents. He draws the outsiders. The king of Israel draws Gentiles. Well, Gentiles are supposed to be the enemy. This is the kind of king who wins over his enemies. Who came for his enemies. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. They're seeing that their attempts to try to disregard Jesus is not working. Look, the whole world has gone after him. That's meant to be an insult. The world's the problem, right? They want Israel to be this superpower again. Don't they realize that the Jewish people are superior to all other peoples? And Jesus is the kind of king that's coming in and he's drawing non-Jewish people in. And that is just repulsive to them. They are looking for a king who will defeat the non-Jewish people. And Jesus is the kind of king who is drawing someone else. He's drawing the outsiders. And now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Verse 20. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So we've got four different parties here. We've got the Pharisees who, who know the scriptures the best and they hate Jesus, right? And then you have the disciples who love Jesus but are kind of confused by him, right? And then you've got the crowd who's wowed by Jesus and want him to be their king. And then you've got the Gentiles who probably know the, last, the least and they just want to see him. They just want to draw near to him. It's kind of amazing that the lower you go, the clearer the picture of Jesus, right? (laughs) You can see Jesus clearly not from high up, but from low. He is a humble king who draws humble people. 
He draws the lowly. He draws the unexpected. He draws the outsider. Other kings crush their enemies. Jesus draws them and converts them and loves them. Jesus has seen best the lower you go. Jesus defies the categories. It seems like those who are on the outside see him most clearly. Don't you see that throughout the Gospel of John? It's the Samaritan woman, right, that sees him clearly. Jesus is not identified or claimed by any particular party or race. He refuses it and transcends it. Are you, are you pro-Jew and anti-Gentile? And Jesus draws both. He doesn't align with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, which would have been the political, religious conflict of his day. Does he believe in the cause of the zealots to overthrow Rome or the cause of the tax collectors? He draws both of them. In fact, he's got both of them in his own. You talk about two political parties that could not be more extreme in the same disciples. You've got a zealot, Simon the Zealot, who wants to take up the sword and overthrow Rome. And you've got Matthew, a tax collector, who collects taxes for the government. And Jesus has both in his in his, um, in his uh, disciple, in his, in his 12 disciples. Jesus will not adhere to any particular ideology here. Does he align with Rome's agenda or Jerusalem's agenda? Does he want us to pay taxes to Caesar or to God? Well, he says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. Is he with the rabbis? Is he on their side or is he with the sinners? Well, he draws both. Is he representing Galilee in the north? The unschooled, you know, blue collar or more of the elite in Judea. Well, he draws both. He's both working class and elite class. Will he promote Samaritan theology or Jewish theology? He draws both to himself. In John 10, 16, he says, There's sheep not of this fold, but I must bring them in also. The Pharisees are lamenting that Jesus is popular and he's drawing in people that should not be drawn in. The Pharisees are disgusted that he's drawing in Greeks and Gentiles. He must therefore not be the Messiah because a Messiah would never receive the Greeks and Gentiles, overthrowing them, defeating them, overwhelming them. That's what they want, and Jesus doesn't do it. So Jesus has a strange citizenship, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, people from all countries and nationalities, people from all different levels of society, he has a strange kingdom, and he draws outsiders. He doesn't overwhelm his enemies. He wins them over. And then we see in verses 23 through 26 a strange edict. This king calls his people to die. Many kings, when they establish a kingdom, call their people to kill. We have to conquer. Jesus calls his people to, to invade and be victorious through your own death. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So isn't that interesting? When the Greeks start coming near to him, then he's like, okay, now it's time. Now it's time for me to do my work of going to the cross and establishing my kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the only one who has eternal life in himself. But if he, in this agricultural metaphor here, goes into the ground and he dies then he can produce spiritual life for many. So this is, this is talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he says, but that's the same for you. That if you're going to be my citizens, citizens under this king, whoever loses his life 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So this is not a call to comfort, safety, and prosperity. This is not a call to dominance, oppression, and popularity, right? I am the kind of king who dies to bring life. And I will have the kind of people who are willing to die to this world in order that they may receive eternal life. Death to this world, life in the next. The only way that Jesus can extend his life is by dying for others. Jesus alone has eternal life, and by dying, he extends it to as many people as will believe. Jesus is the seed that dies to enable the multiplying of eternal life. This is not optional. Death is not optional, but necessary. There is spiritual life for any human being. There is no spiritual life for any human being without the death of Jesus. You realize that, right? That apart from the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, there is no eternal life for anyone. Unless the seed, Jesus, goes into the ground and dies, then there will be spiritual life for others. And that is how we spread this kingdom. The only way anyone can receive the life that Jesus will offer is in his dying and by our dying to ourselves. Loving Christ, following Christ, no matter the cost. Life comes through death. Love for this world brings spiritual, eternal death. And we get honor from the world. Uh, Honor from the world or from God. We have to choose. We have to choose which one we will live for, which one we will love. To follow Jesus is to go ahead and choose to die now so that your eternal life with Jesus can begin now. That's part of what we picture in baptism, right? Is that I am now dead to my old way of life, and now I'm going to live for Christ, right? The old me is put to death, just as Jesus was put to death. My old life has gone into the ground, and now I am raised to be a fruitful, Jesus-loving Christian. Jesus, so here's some reasons we die with Christ. We die with Christ to get eternal life. We die with Christ to be with Jesus. We die with Christ to receive the Father's honor, verse 26. So John Piper puts it this way. He invites us to join him. Jesus says, my dying for your salvation is my design for your imitation. So following Jesus, following this king, means we're the kinds of, king, we're the kinds of citizens that are dying to ourselves for the sake of others, dying to ourselves for the glory of God. Okay, so that's the strange edict. This king has a strange edict. He doesn't say go... Go conquer by killing. He says, go conquer, spread the seed, spread it by willing to lay down your life for others, for me. And then we have this king has a strange agenda, verses 27 through 30. A strange agenda. This king glorifies his father's name. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, which is, that's a fascinating thing. Jesus is just talking about how his followers need to have the courage to die to this world, to hate their life. And yet Jesus in his own, is troubled even in, in himself. Like Jesus was a real human being who did not want to die, <laughs> you know? And so he is dealing emotionally with the fact that he's about to be crucified. He's about to bear the wrath of God, and he feels it. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is willing to go through whatever it takes for his Father's glory. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So his father actually answered him audibly. This is one of the three places we have in the New Testament where we actually hear a voice from God. And listen to what the crowd does. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, 
Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice was, has, not come, has come for your sake, not for mine. So this was to give those who were with him confidence that he really is the son of God and that God really is glorified through his death for sinners. So Jesus is a real human being, verse 27. Verse 28, but for Jesus, there was something that was worth the trouble. There was something that was worth the trouble. Not his own glory in itself, not the salvation of man even in of itself, not the rule of a kingdom, but underneath, above, and throughout all of it is the glory of his Father's name. That was what was motivating Jesus. He's the kind of king that's not seeking his own glory alone, but he's seeking the glory of his Father. So he has a strange agenda. The Father's glory is the point of everything that Jesus does. And in verse 29, we see this weird, people hear different things. The Father audibly confirms what the Son is saying. And some people hear it differently, I think, based on their faith. I think based on their faith, some recognized it. I think others just only heard the thundering. I don't know what to make of all this, but it seems to me like the different interpretations of it were based on people's different levels of faith, I think, probably. Those who didn't believe had a way of explaining it away. It just thundered. Those who maybe didn't want to believe it was God, well, it was an angel. But it's very clear from the text that Jesus believes this to be his father. And so why is Jesus so... Um, zealous for his father's character, why, for the, to glorify his father's name. And here's just a few reasons. The father's character deserves to be vindicated. The father's holiness deserves to be satisfied. The father's mercy deserves to be offered. All of this is happening in the cross. The father's love deserves to be enjoyed. And it can't be without the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The, gra- the Father's grace deserves to be displayed. The Father's glory deserves to be worshipped. And it won't be apart from the cross and the resurrection. The Father's kindness deserves to be poured out. The Father's plan deserves to be accomplished. The Father's sovereignty deserves to be seen. And the Father's wisdom deserves to be expressed. I think that's how he's glorifying the Father. Is that the Father's, ca- the Father's character deserves to be put on display. And I think that you see the glorious character of God displayed on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The only way we would enjoy that and the Father would get the glory of our enjoyment in it is if Christ goes to the cross and dies. And so he's doing this for the glory of his Father, for our good and for his Father's glory. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what made Jesus go to the cross? Well, there's many reasons. The agony of being crucified in front of people, naked, horrible, the skin ripped off his body, slowly suffocating, nails through his wrists and his feet. What makes him go through that with joy is the glory of his Father's name. And for us to enjoy that through faith in him. So, lastly, this king has a strange victory. Verses 31 through 36. Now is the judgment of this world, verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So, Jesus is not surrendering. His death is not a surrendering, it's a conquering. He is going to conquer Satan by his death. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show about what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness will not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So in verses 31 through 33, Jesus gets very specific. His death will overcome sin, Satan and sin. They will be overthrown. His death will be public and famous. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus will die a very public death that the whole world is going to hear about and be drawn to. His death is going to draw people from everywhere. And his death will be by crucifixion. That's what the people realize. They know that when he says the Son of Man will be lifted up, they know what he means. They know that he is saying, I am going to be crucified on a cross. I'm going to be lifted up, and I'm going to publicly die a shameful death, and it's going to draw the world. What a strange victory. What a strange way to conquer the world. The cross is where the head of the serpent is crushed by the seed of the woman. It's where the prophecy from Genesis 3 happens. The cross is how and literally where God is gathering all kinds of people to salvation. It's the preaching of the cross that God brings his people in. It's the place of both wrath and mercy. It's the place of both the defeat of Satan and the victory of God and his people. It is the place of guaranteed destruction of Satan and the place of the reconstruction of the image of God. It's where we're going to be put back together is at the cross. What Jesus has done on the cross. It sounds cryptic to us, but they know exactly what, is, what he means. Look at their response. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Okay, so this idea of Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, and they understand that. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be the, uh, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who would rule Israel forever, and they understand that he will be an eternal king. So they do not understand how could our king die and still be that Son of Man. And Jesus' answer is, the light is among you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And essentially he's saying, we've just got a few more days for me to explain this to you. And that's what the rest of these chapters are going to be in a lot of ways. Chapters 13 through about 17 are going to be Jesus preparing his people to understand, preparing his disciples for what is about to take place, that he is going to be a king who conquers by dying. The king's death brings judgment on the evil and salvation for those who trust in him. So here it is. Jesus answers their question. Um, They go, uh, they are going to need every single word that he speaks from here on out until the crucifixion. And the call is to walk in the light, to have the light, to believe the light, to become sons of light. So here's the call to us today is that Jesus' death and resurrection are the dividing line of all history. It is the crossing of the Rubicon for every one of us. It is the point of no return. What we do with Jesus determines heaven or hell for us. Jesus is saying that right here. The cross is a defeat of evil. And if we side with evil by rejecting Jesus, we will be defeated with Satan. If we turn from that life, if we turn from our sin and trust in him, if we are drawn to this Savior, we will receive light and life and eternal life. The cross is the dividing point of history. So that's our call, is that When we see Jesus lifted up on the cross for our sins, will we be drawn to him? Will we draw near to him in faith? That's the call here. He will draw all kinds of people to himself, people like you and me, to himself. So here's the bottom line. 
This strange king has indeed come. And this strange king has brought and is bringing a strange kingdom with strange citizens. You've maybe heard the phrase, the end justifies the means. I think the Gospels teach us that that's just not true. Jesus could have just zoomed down, died on the cross, and zoomed back up. But he went through a very long process. And in fact, your Old Testament is very long, in part because God is very particular. The means of salvation matters a lot. How Jesus goes about this. The way Jesus entered, the king, entered Jerusalem and everything that he says means that the fact that he died and rose again is important. That's the end. But the way he gets there matters a lot. And I think we as Christians need to remember that. That the means matters a lot too. The way this king enters, his strange entrance matters. The fact that he enters in as a humble, non-political king. Come to save us from our sins, not from Rome. The fact that the way that Jesus draws people matters. It's not just that he does, but the way he does it that matters. This strange edict, the way God calls his people to live, the way Jesus calls his people to live matters. Our lives matter as Christians. It's not just believe in Jesus and then live however you want. No, the way we live matters. The, the means matters. The way Jesus calls his people to enter the kingdom matters. A strange agenda. The king glorifies his father's name. The reason why Jesus did what he did matters. His motives matter. The glory of the father matters. And it matters what our motives are as we follow this king. Are we following this king for our own glory or for our own comfort? Or are we following him for his glory? This king, this king has a strange victory. This king's death brings judgment and salvation. So the way Jesus saves humanity matters. People need to know that it's the death and resurrection that reconciles them to God. Not just a positive regard for Jesus. They can't just, people can't just believe whatever they want about Jesus, construct a Jesus of their own liking. They have, to, they have to trust in the way that God has given. The means by which Jesus saves humanity matters. It is through his death and resurrection. It's by faith, by grace, through faith. So the way matters. The means matters, not just the end. The end is supreme, but the means matters. And how we advance that kingdom matters. So how we go about living in the world really matters. It really does matter. If we're going to follow this king, we should be humble. We should love the outsider. We should be willing to die to the world. We should live for the glory of his name, for the Father's name. And we should proclaim with all of our hearts that Jesus is reconciling people and defeating evil through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So the means matters. How we speak, how we act, shows what kind of king we have. And we have this kind of king. So we are going to have to be humble. We're going to have to pursue outsiders. We have to die to the world. We have to live for God's glory above all else. We're going to have to live at the cross, speak of the cross, invite others to the cross. Friends, how will the world know that we have a strange kind of king if there's a strange people who are following him who don't look just like everybody else? How will the world know what kind of kingdom this kingdom, king rules? They will know by the conduct of the citizens what kind of kingdom it is and what kind of king it is. The subjects become like their king, and we are called ambassadors to represent our king and his kingdom 
to all the nations, including our own. Which means we are going to be, we need to be kingdom citizens of Jesus Christ. The king has an open invitation to everyone to immigrate out of their tyrannical land, their oppressive, abusive ruler, and to come to the land of freedom and grace in Jesus Christ. To come out of the land of sin and Satan and enter the land of this good king, Jesus, by repenting of their sin and trusting in him. So first of all, for those of you that have not yet put your faith in Christ, let me offer an apology for those who have claimed King Jesus and not represented him well. But let me also tell you, don't miss out on this king just because a few of his subjects get it wrong or misrepresent him. Don't miss out on the good king because you've had a bad experience with a Christian. May that, draw, may that cause you to draw all the closer to King Jesus because he really is this strange and really is this good for all who will trust in him. And there will come a day when Jesus will come on the war horse. We're still in the era when Jesus comes on the donkey softly, gently, calling us to turn from our sins. It's the kindness of the Lord that's leading to repentance. God is still offering human beings an opportunity to enter into his kingdom. But there will come a time when that day is over and he will come and he will judge and he will come on the war horse and it will be too late. So I am calling you to leave your rebellion, come to the cross, die to yourself, receive eternal life. May the judgment of your sin land upon him. And may the grace that he offers land on you. His substitutionary death for sin, his glorious resurrection, his ruling and reigning in heaven, and his return. He is a strange king, but he is a wonderful king. And I encourage you to bow the knee to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. And really a, a strange passage with many strange things in it. And Lord, we, uh, we come to a king who, who does things almost the exact opposite of what we would expect. Um, a king who does not come looking for uh, a political overthrow of Rome, but comes wanting to gently, um, gently draw us to himself and to remove the stain and penalty of sin. A king who's willing to die for his subjects instead, and then calls his subjects to follow him in dying to the world that others may know, he, uh, may know him. So God, we, we pray that you would help us um, to live in the light of this king and this kingdom. Help us to be faithful, to represent him well, to be his ambassadors. And we pray that someone would cross the border and would come into this kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Yeah.
down one more time up down up down we'll take a few minutes just to answer any questions you might have I forgot to mention that earlier in the service that we would do this but if there's Justin will ask me a couple questions but if there's some out here as well and if there's some online you can text those in you have to do it quick though because they there's a little bit of a delay but anyway yeah so I have a few questions and I'll ask those and then <coughs> I'll open it up to to you guys to um, so there's a lot, a lot in the passage, yeah. and uh, a lot of really good things. Um, I guess one question that I have about the text itself yeah. is it talks about Jesus being lifted up. Yeah. Now that sort of, at least on face value, sounds like, you know, you think lifted up high in front of other people, like like praised, praised. You know, everyone can see you. Yeah. I mean. Could you explain this whole lifting up? Because it doesn't seem super positive. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Um, let's see. Which verse is that? That is... It's towards the end. 32. Yeah. Okay. So, verse 31. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, 
When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. <laughs> so I've, used, I've heard people misquote this verse as being like, well, if we just lift up Jesus, then he'll draw people to himself. And it's like, well, that's not actually what he's saying. Lifting up meaning like, as long as we tell people about Jesus, they'll come. That's true. But what he's talking about here, and it's very clear in their response, that this lifting up is a euphemism for crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that very next verse tells us what he means. So um, that he is meaning his execution. And that by his execution, that's how he's going to draw people to himself. So yeah. it's the foolishness of the cross that Paul talks yeah. about. I decide to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Yeah. So um, it's really kind of offensive when you think about it. It, it yeah. would be like, you know, um, us glorying in the cross is a bit like I glory in the electric chair. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a strange thing to say. Like yeah, this yeah. would have been the most gruesome way to die. And the fact that Jesus is going to make that the symbol of salvation, yeah. this shameful execution. Yeah. And so. clearly the crowd's kind of shocked by it. Yeah. It is kind of curious because now the cross, you know, churches put crosses everywhere, but, you know, they don't put electric chairs up everywhere. Like, right. Because we've lost that kind of sense for how right. disturbing that yeah. kind of death was. Yeah. If you can just imagine putting guillotines around and going, yeah, we yeah. love the guillotine. Yeah, yeah. Like, the crosses. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. Yeah, something is wrong with you. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've lost sort of the offensiveness of the cross in that sense. Is that this yeah. is, this would have been this would have been a hard pill to swallow in yeah. Roman times. Yeah. So, um, I'll ask one more question before, and I'll open it up. Um, oh, one more thing on yeah. that is that in the Old Testament it talks about cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Yeah. So that's super offensive then too yeah. to go. Well, wait a minute. You know, the cursed one is the Messiah? Yeah. Like, that, that would have just not computed. And I think even the disciples, it says that they don't really understand what's going on until afterwards, too, that, yeah. um, that there was something different going on there. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's good. So one of the things that stands out in this passage, because you noted at some point earlier when preaching through John, one of the ways John's different from the other Gospels is you don't see Jesus exercising power over evil spirits. Yeah. But here he talks a lot about how he's about to defeat Satan. So one of my questions is, why does Jesus have to die to defeat Satan? Like, you know, we understand maybe he has to die in our place for our sins, but why does he have to die to deal with Satan? Yeah, I might, I might ask for your help on this oh, one. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, well, one is the, you know, Satan in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 is the means by which the, the people fall into sin, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan. Satan is clearly the adversary. In fact, that, that's what Satan means, is the one who opposes. Um, and so um, there's this prophecy then that when God is giving the curse on Adam and Eve, there's this little prophecy embedded in there that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, meaning that their state of being under sin is going to be temporary. You know, So mm-hmm. there's a sense in which Satan is the ruler of this world. Adam and Eve obeyed Satan instead of God, and so in a sense, Satan has a certain authority in this world by God, given by yeah. God, and that, but that kingship is going to be overthrown. That ruler is going to be overthrown, and the reason, the way he does that through the cross is somewhat mysterious to me. Would you have anything? Well, I think... Other cross and resurrection, I think the whole, the whole yeah. thing overall. Yeah, well, so I think that part of it is, is that the, so... The Bible starts with Adam and Eve, and they fail. 
they okay. were t in charge of ruling the creation. The serpent conquers. The serpent conquers them, and and he subject he subjects them to death, and now we have the second Adam, which Paul talks about. Jesus as a second Adam, he's going to defeat uh, Satan by regaining the th the rightful place that humans uh, deserved. By means of death. By means of death, though. He's going to pay for their sins, but he's also then going to be raised and vindicated, is how I understand it. So, yeah. um, uh -huh. but so yeah. redemption begins to work backwards. Backwards, yeah. Death was the curse, but now through the yeah. curse. Jesus so he liberates the people from the powers of the evil spirits okay. by taking the place that humans should have had. Sorry, I asked you a question no, without, having, great. without having thought yeah, it through, it's good honestly. To, good to have you here, yeah. So hopefully that was interesting to you. I found that interesting. <laughs> Justin um, and I sometimes have wonderful conversations up here. <laughs> so uh, any questions uh, about the passage or application questions that you might have about the passage? We have one over here. Should I I'll repeat the question? Yeah. So uh, the question is, so we're called in this passage, Christians are called to die uh, the way Jesus died. And there's physical death, but what, what does it look like practically um, in, in everyday things? Like we're supposed to die to the world as well, not just physical death. What, what are the practical ways that we die like Jesus died, I guess? Is that sort yeah. of? Yeah. Yeah, that this part is. I mean, it's it's clearly taught here in other places in Scripture, uh, but there is, yeah, for me to get my head around it is uh, Jesus. I think clearly talking about his death is necessary in order that it might be fruitful, but he also seems to be speaking that that's actually how his followers are going to follow him. They're going to die to the world in the sense that they're going to love him and his glory even to the to the point of death if necessary. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to do with what we worship, what we think is supreme, and that, um, uh, yeah, it, it's whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I was thinking a little bit of the rich young ruler who mm -hmm. was unwilling to part with his wealth in order to follow Jesus, which just showed that he really worshipped his wealth and what his wealth brought him than Jesus and what Jesus brought. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a sense in which that all of our idols, have to, we have to die to them. They have no voice in us in order for us to follow Jesus and to be like him. And um, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. Mm. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I think that looks a thousand different ways every day. I suppose that looks like doing the dishes. I suppose that looks like speaking kindly. I suppose that looks like getting up early and reading, my, reading the Bible when I, when I don't feel like it. I, I assume it looks a number of different ways every day of how do I treasure Christ above whatever else at any particular time mm -hmm. is sort of the goal. None of us does that perfectly, but this idea of, of treasuring him above all else, that's mm -hmm. my on-the-spot stab at it. But yeah. yeah, dying to self, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah physically if necessary, but certainly yeah, yeah. In, a, in a mental... Yeah, I framework. think it's, yeah. it's passing every 
passing every thought, every desire. I mean, it sounds like you'd almost kind of become paranoid, but I think some of it is also that God is doing this work in us. So it's not like some of it will become natural as he works in us. Uh, so that sometimes we won't even think about it. And, you know, often it's actually interesting at the judgment. It says, Jesus says, when you uh, gave this cup of water, when you went and visited, the, you know, those in prison, you know, all these things, they're like, well, you did it for me. And they're like, well, when? And he's like, well, it was when you did those things. You know, like they weren't even aware that they were in one sense dying yeah. to themselves. It was so coming out almost so reflexively, yeah. this selflessness that they were like, oh, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. All right. That, I, that's a hard one. Yeah. That's, that's a hard question to try to answer. Well. <laughs> okay. We, wanna, we don't want to belabor this, but we also want to yeah. be a place that's always open to questions. So. Yeah. Great. All right. Thank you, Justin. And if there's anything you want to talk about after the service, I'll be around either here or outside. Um, and let's, let's stand one more time for our benediction. Thanks for being here today. Check out redeeminggrace.info if you want to find out just more about what's going on in our church. That's our digital bulletin. Um, and then you can on that website, you can register for next Sunday. If you'd like to come back again, we'd love to have you. And then you can also subscribe to get our text message updates. And this is our benediction. Benediction just means good words, so we just want to speak some good words from God's word over you. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen? May that be true in our lives. Uh, you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.